0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with the creator of the Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, who talks about Twitter and whether or not Jefferson would have liked social media.
1: We begin by talking about blizzards and Jefferson's ideas of temperate climate, and we turn to social media. An article in The Atlantic that says that social media is dying. We talk about Jefferson's response to some of the social phenomena of our time and and how does a historian ground this in anything that's a it's a meaningful document
0: we also answer a number of questions from listeners including a delightful one from a teacher in iowa
1: if bridget of iowa wants to know how you can possibly teach the history of this country if you don't look at both the most honorable moments in our history and some of the most discreditable ones please join us for all
0: that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to speak with President Thomas Jefferson about American events, and seated before me is Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, sir.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, we've been through an election this month, and there are winners, and there are losers, and... Uh, Most of the outcomes have have been decided, but it it made me think about you, sir, when you became president. Uh, It was a very difficult time. There were numerous votes in the House of Representatives, and you had to sit through all of this. What did you do during
1: that time? I was in Washington City uh, because I was the vice president of the United States, and so I had been there along with John Adams. Uh, I, I monitored what was going on in the House of Representatives and some of the backroom negotiations about what sort of president that I would be. And would I make concessions to the Federalists? Would I keep Mr. Hamilton's fiscal system? Would I throw all the Federalist office holders out? Uh, What were were my actual intentions if uh, the House of Representatives finally certified my election? So I had to monitor some of that, of course. But I couldn't produce a cabinet because I couldn't assure anybody that I was going to be the third president of the United States. So I thought about that to a certain degree. I thought about the first things that I would do as president. And one of them, by the way, was to free everybody, Uh, pardon everybody who had been jailed under the alien and sedition laws. But I caught up on my reading. Uh, I wrote correspondence about science and and literature and things that are of real interest to me, uh, politics I don't find particularly interesting. And I tried to follow the philosophy of Stoicism. This was a constitutional crisis. It might have led to civil war. Uh, there were serious suggestions that it could lead to armed bloodshed, including by my friend James Monroe, the governor of Virginia. It certainly was a constitutional crisis. It might have dissolved our government and and, and led to anarchy, and we, we would have had to find some way to regroup. So this was an anxious time. But I don't like to be anxious. I like to live in harmony. I like to take things by their smooth handle. And so I practiced the stoicism of Epictetus, the ancient Greek philosopher, never letting any excitement overwhelm me and never to let any anxiety derail me to try to live in in the middle with with a sense of serenity and to and to realize that most things that we get anxious about don't deserve to intrude upon our happiness that we should find a level of serene rational pleasure in life impervious to the to the wildest excitements and joys on the one hand and impervious to to depression and 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 anxiety on the other hand and this is a discipline. You know, It's not just a, you don't just subscribe to this and then it, it works for you. You have to work at it every day. You have to try to be a person of serenity and equanimity. And you have to work at this very, very hard because it doesn't just come in instinctively. I'm not a, a serene human being, but I, I tried to practice that and to have a sense of the long historical view that whether I became the president of the United States was neither here nor there. But whether our Constitution survived, that was important.
0: Finally, Mr. Jefferson, after you went through this period and you watched the the workings of our government and in and, and the end succeeded, were you more optimistic about the survival of our nation?
1: Yes. I called my election the Second American Revolution, but I also was very fond of, of ship metaphors, and I, you know, I'm the ship of state sort of thing. And I said that our, our, our ship of state had survived these waves, this storm of illiberalism and, and the, the persecution of honest journalists and the war fever and all the madness. There was a madness at work in the 1790s, and, and we survived. It, you know, a little, the ship was a little battered, to be sure, but it sailed through to port. I love those metaphors. That's virtually the only metaphors I ever used were ship-of-state metaphors. We were vindicating the experiment. There were times during the 1790s when we all wondered whether the experiment would survive. So, yes, I came away cautiously optimistic about the future of our republic. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir.
0: Welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week on the Jefferson Hour, we'll be speaking with the creator of the show, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson. And Clay, good to see you, sir.
1: Good to see you, my friend. I'm back from my autumn of travels in Europe. I was gone for more than five weeks total, and I feel completely filled with high European culture. And now back in on the plains of North Dakota, where... As you well know, a blizzard has hemmed us in. Yes,
0: it's great fun, actually. A, a cultural phenomena that you almost need to be a resident here to to understand. But both of us shall bundle up and get out and dig out, I I assume.
1: I have to dig my way out of my house. This happens about once every three years. The snow is so high. Uh, I think we had about two feet of snow, and then the, the wind has blown it up against buildings. It's so high that I literally will have to shovel my way out. That takes an hour in and of itself before you even begin to handle the driveway and the sidewalk. So this is, as you say, this is an important northern Great Plains phenomenon. And both of us are old enough to remember when we were children the, the giant storms that came then. One or, one every couple of years where your garage would literally be buried with snow. And back then, cars didn't have fuel injection And so they didn't start very well in the winter. And so you would see hundreds and hundreds of cars stranded with their hoods open, hoping that uh, the equivalent of AAA would come or some neighbor would come with jumper cables. That was a kind of heroic era. And I know older men exaggerate the heroic nature of their young lives. But I do think the winters were harsher when we were children.
0: You know, whenever we talk about the weather, of course, I go back to Jefferson and how readily he chides me for living in such a ridiculous uh, environment uh, with such tough weather and quotes temperatures from when Lewis and Clark were here.
1: That's true. Yeah. Jefferson said that no rational person would live in New England, in Vermont, or New Hampshire. He was up there with Madison in 1791 on their famous botanizing tour, when they were studying the Hessian fly and and examining the flora and fauna of New England, and also apparently starting to build the the germ of what would become the Jeffersonian Republican Party. But at any rate, he wrote to his daughter and said, "Who would live here?" He was there in the temperate time of the season, and that's a mild. Climate compared to North Dakota at its worst, and I ask myself, with some frequency, David, what rational person would live here? I mean, it's not—it's not just the climate, but the climate is tough. Well,
0: but nowadays, you know, we have so many more things to help us through bad weather, and uh, people react to it. Uh, during during our youth, uh, none of those things were there. I think of of social media and how big a part it plays in in weather disasters, Uh, which leads me to this week's conversation, uh, which was intended to be answering listener questions. But of course, I'm a listener and I have questions and I I have something for you that I'd like you to comment on before I get to the official listener questions. And I, I read an article just recently in The Atlantic titled, The Age of Social Media is Ending, written by Ian Buggast, And he says, quote, it's over. Facebook is in decline, Twitter in chaos. It's never felt more plausible that the age of social media might end, and soon. That may be wishful thinking. He goes on to say, now that we've washed up on this unexpected shore, we can look back at the shipwreck that it left us here with fresh eyes, Perhaps we can find some relief. Social media was never a way to work, play, and socialize, though it did become second nature. The practice evolved via a weird mutation, one so subtle that it was difficult to spot happening in the moment. Like I say, maybe may be wishful thinking, but he has a point. I, I, I was hoping for your reaction, sir.
1: Well, I think that he may be prematurely announcing the death of social media. When you have the chance at instant communication, my daughter lives in England. I have a friend in Italy. I have friends scattered all over North America. Instant communication. I can send what amounts to a telegram to any of these people, and within seconds, I can get a reply. So text messaging is a form of social media, although it's a relatively private one. I think Facebook will yield to something else. I think it it has great strengths and great weaknesses, but I don't think that humanity is going to turn away from the instantaneousness of projecting uh, their lives. People like to post memos of their cats, their guitars, their broken foot, their wedding, their parents who died, the anniversary of, of their marriage, the, the how they're preparing for Thanksgiving, you know what what they're doing for the Fourth of July, um, how they're reacting to some uh, national event, and you see these waves of of postings, and there's a lot of what might be called pointless narcissism in this, you know, the, the idea of Facebook when it began was that we would communicate with the people we especially knew. You know, How, how do you maintain your college community after you all graduated and, and have the diaspora of your lives? But it's turned into this sort of self-publishing thing where everybody publishes stuff about themselves into the world. And then they're always shocked when their privacy has been compromised. And so I think Facebook will morph or die. Twitter's in trouble because of the the problem that you can't police it if you believe in free expression then anything goes if you start policing it as almost you must then somehow something's degraded some, there's some sense in which it, it it's an artificial uh free marketplace of ideas and it somehow i think everyone even people who understand why twitter say does not allow former President Trump access, I think everyone still has something stick on their throat about that. Like, well, the idea is that everybody gets to talk to everybody and why are some ideas regarded as forbidden and, so, uh, and other ideas um, are socially acceptable and so on. So I think that these, these instant forms of social media have produced great uh, benefits. People find each other across space. Not just I can find an old friend, but I can also make new friends with people who share my habits. Maybe I'm a ham radio operator and I feel all alone, or maybe I have a certain interest in um, origami and nobody in my community is interested, but I find somebody in Alabama who is, or a group that is. Great benefits come from all of that, I think. And then, of course, terrible abuse. And we've all seen that. I don't need to describe it. But, you know, when I post something, you've you've witnessed some of this, I'll post something about my tomatoes, that my tomatoes are especially good this year. And then there will be four responses saying, right on, that's what Jefferson would want. And then someone will say, well, Jefferson was a slaveholder. And then somebody will say, race relations are going to destroy this country. And then someone will say, you're the biggest idiot who ever lived. I wish you were dead. And then someone will say, Obama ruined America. And you think, how did that happen? It was a little post about tomato, a tomato patch. And so the way the anarchy drifts around in social media is extremely interesting and, and also very troubling.
0: I have to read a couple more lines from this story for your reaction. He writes, the change was almost invisible, but it had enormous consequences. All at once, billions of people saw themselves as celebrities, pundits and taste makers
1: <laughs> agreed and my view my my um, paraphrase of that David is everybody can publish any person anywhere the 400 pound person in his mother's basement the the, the, the Emily Dickinson in the attic any person can write, type out something, push send, and publish something to the world, and uh, it's astonishing because people have never had this power in the history of the world. Even in our lifetime, when we were young people, if you wanted to publish something, you could do one of two things: you could send a letter to the editor, and the editor would call you and say, "David, you can't say that. I'm sorry. If you tone this down, I might be able to publish some version." Or we have a 300-word limit on this, but uh, you know, this is inappropriate for the Tribune, but you know, or, or, or the Gazette, but uh, maybe some other time. Or you could buy a mimeograph machine or get access to one and crank these things out and take them on street corners or put them in the senior citizen centers. But you couldn't publish in any meaningful way until now. And now I could write a 30-word a treatise on the elections of 2022 and post it tonight. I could write a 3,000-word treatise. I could write a 300,000-word treatise and post it tonight. I could publish anything I want, and there will be autocorrect on the spelling and grammar. It's an amazing phenomenon. Nobody expected this. And boy, has it been used and abused.
0: In the article, he talks about how it might end, and he uses the example of quitting smoking uh, in the 20th century. And he said, we did so slowly and over time by forcing social life to suffocate the practice. That process must now begin in earnest... For social media.
1: I think there's more good than ill in instantaneous communication. I think this is a dream that has been as old as humanity, that we would be able to communicate across time and space and that there would be ways to um, to reach out beyond ourselves and to learn and to teach, to, to opinionate and to um, ingest. And I think the photographs, the videos, the tropes, the memes, uh, the little essayettes, the the one-liners, the tweets, that on the whole, this has been an extraordinarily important and good phenomenon for the world. And I think like every other new technology, it gets misused because people are immature. They're just so um, delighted that they have this sudden power that they misuse it. But over time, I think they settle down. I think the culture is settling down. I think the election of 2022 seems to signify that that the high water mark of the national conspiracy paranoia has ended, or is diminishing. So, I think I, I'm an optimist about this, and I think he's I think he's simply wrong about this. I think Facebook may die, Twitter may die, but there will be something else that is used because if I go, if I walk into a, a, a Chuck E. Cheese. In Denver, and I see Paul McCartney. You bet that photo is being posted. There's no, there will, there's nothing that would stop you from posting that photograph.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see how that all changes. We need to take a break. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And we hope you are aware of us because of social media. We're kind of social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're online. Anyway, before we took our break and we were discussing social media and this article in The Atlantic, The Age of Social Media, is ending, perhaps you would speculate on Thomas Jefferson and his use of social media. Were that available to him?
1: Well, a couple of things. So this actually allows us to talk a little bit about method. So, I mean, in a certain sense, what a crazy question! Yes, <laughs> sorry. No, it's but it's not your. It's not a crazy question that because it, because you're asking it. It's inherently crazy, and what we do on the Jefferson Hour is frankly inherently crazy. So Jefferson died in eighteen twenty-six. Period. We don't know what he would have done during the Civil War. We have some hunches, but we don't know. We don't know what he would have done about uh, apartheid, separate but equal, Plessy versus Ferguson. I have some hunches, but we don't know. We don't know whether he would have wanted the U.S. to get involved in World Wars One or Two. I have some thoughts, but I'm not sure. We don't know what he would think about atomic weaponry. You know, the list is infinite. And so if you ask a question like this, then what I do is I, I sort of spin through what I've read. And I, you see behind me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on Thomas Jefferson. I spin through what I've read. I spin through what I know. And I think, where does this connect? Does this in any way connect? So here's the connect, I think. When he was writing the Declaration of Independence in June of 1776, he was beside himself because his wife was back at uh, Monticello. She was ill. Uh, She might die. She certainly was ill. He had young children who were vulnerable to infant diseases and he wasn't hearing from anybody and he kept writing these more and more and more desperate letters like i don't know what's going on i can't think i can't concentrate I, you know for god's sake tell me if something's happened i need communication well today as you know he would instantly be able to determine that his wife was not in great health but she was fine that there was no immediate crisis that she would in fact live uh, for another 6 years he would know that today he couldn't know that then or take lewis and clark lewis this will sound like a paradox lewis would be alive today if there had been smartphones because when what killed lewis as you know david was that he had to authorize a public private enterprise to return the mandan leader shehek shot to north dakota and that had failed once because of a rick hostility at the top of South Dakota. And so Lewis decided to send a huge group of people and some of them would be uh, fur trappers, they would be commercial people, and some of them would be military, but they all would have guns. And this army of a few hundred people of, of, of white frontiersmen would, would ascend the Missouri river and get through the choke points of the Lakota near pier, South Dakota, ...and the Arikara at the top of South Dakota, and they would then re-deliver Shehekshot to the Mandan villages in what's now North Dakota. Lewis barely got permission to do something along these lines because the communications were so slow going back and forth. It took a month. It took six weeks. Some letters simply disappeared... And finally, when he needed to do this because Jefferson was writing him from Monticello, Jefferson is by now out of office. He's saying you got to get this native person back. You, it's a moral duty that you get Cheheka back to North Dakota. And so Lewis is, is is desperate to please his master, and yet he has to work through the Madison administration and the War Department, and he can't get any news. And so finally, in despair, he authorizes a. At, at, at the suggestion of the Chouteau family, who knew the fur trade and knew the Upper Missouri, he added a $500 gift allowance to the contract. He spent another $500 without government explicit support for presents, for gifts to send to the Iroquois to mollify them. The War Department finally got wind of this months later, and they wrote him a letter that killed him. And they said, "No, we're not paying for it. That was unauthorized. You can't you can't spend money that way." we didn't even like this public private thing in the first place it smells of conflict of interest i know you you have a you have a, an investment in the fur trade so that adds another element that makes us really concerned about this we we authorized this thing on a flat fee you accepted it it's a it's a contract between the government of the united states and the governor of louisiana and now you've broken it without authority we're not paying that contract Lewis was already strained he went into a complete funk, he, he wrote desperate letters, and he finally decided to go to Washington to try to get this sorted out, and probably he would have been able to get it sorted out had he made it, but he killed himself on the Natchez Trace, and he killed himself in some part because he was being officially rebuked and humiliated by the United States government and why? Because of a communications issue, which would have been instantly solved by a telephone, a telegram, a, a tweet, a memo, an email, uh, or the U.S. Postal Service, if it were um, as efficient as it became in the 20th century. And so if you add up the number of times where Jefferson really needs to communicate with somebody and can't because of the primitive technologies of his time, you bet he would be in favor of it. Now, he, he, he's probably not going to tweet He's not going to post pictures of his toe when he breaks his toe on the stairs at Monticello. He's not going to have a cat meme.
0: You know, that's why, that was one of the parts of the question I was hoping you would answer is that would Jefferson get it down to 35 words and send something out? Um, obviously he, he could do a lot with 35 words, but um, uh, I, I, I can't imagine him quipping doing... Well, wait a minute, my friend.
1: You, we did the, Remember years ago we did the 35 Words Project? Yeah. And it was actually really exciting, but the 35 most important words in the English language, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... That's you, you get five times that in a tweet. Jefferson was born for Twitter. He, he is very uh, good at concise expression. Nothing is more certainly written in the Book of Faith than that this people must and will be free about slavery. Um, if I had to choose between government without newspapers and newspapers without government, I wouldn't hesitate to choose newspapers. If you go through Jefferson's complete 85 volumes of writings, you could do, you could tweet for 50 years. Well, maybe you want to start that. So
0: we spent a lot of time on this, but it, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. What
1: do you think? I mean, you, I, obviously Jefferson would be appalled by some parts of social media. How could he not? It's it's so vulgar. It's so narcissistic. It's so aggressive. Um, it's it's so sexed up in many ways. It's so it's it's so futile. It's so it's so frivolous in so many ways. But. The idea of instant communication, concise sentence structure and word length, overcoming space. Uh, it seems to me that he would have to be for it.
0: Yep, I I I I, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, let's move on to some questions from listeners, if we if we might. Yeah, here's almost a housekeeping one, but it's important. Comes from uh, Joe Mooster. Dostoevsky translator, Uh, who do you prefer, he wants to know.
1: Yeah, you got to hang on, push pause, because it's hard to pronounce these names.
0: And let it be noted for the broadcast that Mr. Jenkinson has left his seat and is checking his library to make certain that he answers this question correctly. We shall wait.
1: David, I'm back. As you know, I live in a library house up here in the plains of North Dakota. I'm counting on those books as insulation today against this blizzard, which would otherwise blow me off the face of the earth. <laughs> I'm doing this um, retreat at Loxa Lodge. I do two every January. One will be on the return of Lewis and Clark. Really an interesting subject, and the great David McCandry will be a part of that. And the other one for four and a half days is on two novels by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist uh, who lived in the 19th century. So he was born, I think, in 1821, so just at the end of Jefferson's life. And by the way, Jefferson could not have admired Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is too dark. Uh, He sees man, humanity, as a deeply broken being with extraordinary spiritual possibilities the redemption is, is, is a part of Dostoevsky's view of the world, but it, it comes out of um, the ash heap of human darkness. At any rate, uh, here are the uh, translators that I, that I prefer, uh, and they're the, by the, the greatest translators of Russian literature ever. Richard Pevere, P-E-V-E-A-R, and Larissa Volokhonsky. Richard Pevear and Larissa Volokhonsky, V-O-L-O-K-H-O-N-S-K-Y, V-O-L-O-K-H-O-N-S-K-Y. There are also really good translations by Constant Garnett uh, from a hundred years ago, but I read um, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's novel, it, side by side with um, Pevear and Volokhonsky, and then with Constance Garnett, and um, these two are are absolutely outstanding and first rate okay so
0: a first read from this author what would you recommend
1: read crime and punishment crime and punishment is a novel about a young man who murders a pawnbroker for no apparent reason uh, he's having a kind of a nervous breakdown among other things and then the guilt the guilt just consumes him and it's a it's a extraordinary novel about human waywardness and guilt and redemption. And it, you know, if you, if you think of the like uh, law and order, criminal minds, the, that guy who is the, he's, he's the investigator, but he's kind of a bully and he gets right in people's faces and he uses psychological manipulation to get them to confess. And at the end of the hour, they always wind up confessing. It's a brilliant, uh, brilliant piece of, of drama it's straight out of dostoevsky the 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 investigating detective in in crime and punishment he knows that raskolnikov is guilty committed the murder but he's going to, he, he's going to make raskolnikov confess and because he doesn't have any real evidence and so all the only evidence he has is his psychological penetration and to watch the dance of the of the detective and and raskolnikov as this novel unfolds is absolutely extraordinary. And I'll just say this much more. In the heart of this novel, there is a moment when Raskolnikov and this young woman who's been turned to prostitution by the profound poverty of her family wind up in the same room, this little deal table, this little sort of card table in the center and a a tiny little candle in the room. And they look across at each other, um, it's it's one of the most sublime moments in all of literature i can tell you that
0: well, that's great thanks for that you know you you have a, a, a an effect on uh, uh myself in in my reading and uh, there is one of your uh, authors that you have professed as a favorite many times and you can guess
1: who it is Oh, well, you know, Dickens, I think. That's
0: right. Very good. Uh, And uh, I, like many, uh, I'm sure many people haven't read Dickens since our days in high school. Um, Can
1: I digress for a minute? So I was watching. No,
0: I have to finish this. And that is that I am am nearly done with Oliver Twist. Um, And it's just, you know, he's a great writer. Uh, When did you start reading it? Uh, uh, About a week ago, week and a half ago.
1: Isn't it amazing?
0: It really is, and he, you know, you 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 have often talked about what a great writer he is, and he is not touched by age. Well, in certain ways, he is, but um, his turn of phrase and use of the language is it's really, really good. You know, I mean, he's Dickens has sort of fallen into oh, a Christmas Carol and sort of a caricature and and not taken seriously. He's a great writer, so uh, you have influenced me once again, sir.
1: Well, there's no end to it. So a couple quick things. Um, Congratulations, by the way. It makes me really happy. Um, really happy. But secondly, uh, when you finish it, uh, then you go on to to um, David Copperfield, his autobiographical novel, which is one of the supreme works of, of, of English literature. But I was, really? watch, I was watching last night um, some election stuff, you know, and there's a man named Ralston in... Southern Nevada in Las Vegas, who's regarded as the political genius of of uh, Nevada politics. I've met him a couple of times. John Ralston, I think is his name. And he's in his office. You know, you get to, you get to spy on people now because, you know, they're, they're home with their Zoom when they're being interviewed. And so everyone decides how they want their background to look. And so I was just watching him and listening to his analysis of the election. And I saw, oh, that's the Oxford complete Charles Dickens. He has the Oxford complete... Charles Dickens on the shelf behind his head. And I'm going to write to him now and say, right on, brother. You know, <laughs> you made my day. Uh, you, you, Dickens matters to you. Well, let's talk about Dickens. So, yeah, uh, I've been kind of a voyeur for the past three years looking at people's books, the stuff they choose to put behind them um, to be seen on television. It tells you a lot about who they are. And
0: it's also a great way for authors to promote their own book. Well, uh, that's another whole question. You know, our Even Lindsay, Lindsay he does that when it's just the three of us. <laughs> you always see her, her great book. I the see cabinet. the cabinet
1: and a pillow, and it, it it amuses me. But it doesn't amuse me when I'm watching television and some person who wrote a book on the election of 2020 has seven copies of the book right behind her head. And I think, come on, let's see Dickens. Let's see Dostoevsky. Let's see... Tolstoy. Let's see Mark Twain. Let's see Flaubert.
0: We got a couple of emails that I I sorted through uh, about a show we just recently did concerning the wall of separation. Uh, Do you recall that? It was a a very interesting discussion.
1: Yeah, the wall of separation between church and state, the letter to the Danbury Baptists in January 1st, 1802.
0: So the first one I think is an easy answer for you. It Michael Belcher, and he wants to know if Jefferson said the traditional, so help me God at his swearing-in ceremony as president for either term, um, whether he did or not, did he see it as a violation of the spirit of the Constitution? If he did do it, if he did say this, did he see it as an accommodation to the public?
1: I don't think he did, and I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, he's a deist and a Unitarian, but that's just a hunch because he often was, he is often conformed to social expectations on the question of religion. His children were baptized and confirmed, and he attended Anglican services in Virginia and so on. He's not uh, an atheist. By no means is Jefferson an atheist. And so you could say maybe he did, but if you look at the Constitution, I'm I've been giving these online courses about it. They're fascinating. The Constitution is about 4,500 words. It begins with that incredible preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, etc. God is never mentioned. Jesus is never mentioned. Divinity, providence, salvation, never mentioned. Think of that. There's no reference in the Constitution of the United States to God, Godhead, Jesus, salvation, Christianity. That shocks a lot of people because they think, oh, well, we're a Christian nation. Maybe, but not in our not in our founding document. And so there is an oath. There is an oath in the Constitution, and it doesn't end, so help me God. And so I'm guessing Jefferson delivered the oath the way it is in the Constitution of the United States and that it would be very, very unlikely that he would add the phrase, so help me God. It isn't written in,
0: so help me God. That's just an ad lib of sorts, huh?
1: Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8, David. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Period. Period. That comes out of the jury tradition, you know, when people are sworn in in um, courts. Um, so it has a it has a long pedigree, but the Constitution ends Constitution of the United States. Period. End of story. Very good.
0: If you have a question you'd like to submit to Clay Jenkinson or President Jefferson, you can do so by going to jeffersonhour.com. You'll find out a lot more about the show there. You can support the show if you'd like to. Meanwhile, we are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
1: back, everyone, to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm talking with my friend David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, about a lot of things, listener mail, about social media and Thomas Jefferson, how Jefferson would respond to some of the cultural phenomena of our times. You know, David, this program may seem to be kind of whimsical to people, I enjoy this when we just sort of talk about the blizzards and Jefferson's dislike of cold climates and his botanizing tour with Madison up into New England and what he might think about this or that. I want everyone to know we're speculating, of course. We don't know how Jefferson would respond to Twitter. We have hunches, and and historians use such evidence as before them, and in this case, it's all from documents and to a tiny extent from family traditions to try to make sense of what Jefferson was then, what he did, what he said, what he thought, what he felt. He's not very good on that. He doesn't really help us with what he felt. And then we carefully project him forward. So how would he have responded to the war in Cuba in 1898? How would he have responded to the annexation of Hawaii in 1898? How would he have responded to uh, the McCarthy crisis, the McCarthy era, uh, uh, and the Red Scare of the First World War and, and and the Cold War. We don't know. I repeat, we don't and cannot know. But we have to work from the evidence that we have. And there's some some things you certainly can conclude that, for example, a man who wrote to Patrick Henry saying, it's in our interest to limit the havoc of war and to make sure it only between uniformed Men who are engaged in the war, and that there should be no collateral damage, and that certain people should be exempted from war service because they are key figures in our economy. That person is probably not in favor of Hiroshima, where most of the people killed were innocent civilians going to work or school in the morning. And so it's not that we know for sure that Jefferson would be appalled by Hiroshima, but we can be almost 100% certain that he would think that a weapon of mass destruction is just barbarism we can contextualize Hiroshima and Nagasaki given the era given what was going on but it helps us to have a fresh look from someone like Jefferson who would say how can it be justified that a device however ingenious and of course he would want to know all about it that a device like that can vaporize 60 to 90,000 people in an instant and and how can this be okay what what sort of civilization would would sanction this? There is another letter
0: that comes to us from Grinnell, Iowa. Bridget Brandt wrote us. Uh, she's been teaching history to middle school students uh, in Grinnell, Iowa for 25 years. And her question is, what are the 10 most important historical events or people or places That all students should know before they graduate from high school. She says, behind reading and writing and math, the most important subject, I believe, is history, especially the history of our nation in its relation to the rest of the world. If you don't know the history of America, both in its shining and in its deplorable moments, Then how do you grow up to love this country and live your life as an honorable American? Well said, Bridget. What do you say, sir?
1: Well, first, congratulations. 25 years teaching middle school is an amazing achievement, and it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that and to have the stamina to continue to do it for a quarter of a century, and and we certainly need to have the deepest respect for such people. That's a great question, the 10 most important events, of course. It's going to be 100, it's going to be 1,000, but...
0: I really should have been fair and given you a, a heads up so you could have prepped on this.
1: I would have spent three or four days thinking about it. I'm going to ask Lindsay to do this program because I think this is going to be really interesting because if you want to see the contrast between young woman starting out and old man finishing up and old history, new history, she's a snarkist, I'm a romantic, I think this could be a really, really interesting... Well,
0: let's let's look at her other part of the question. And I, I I I have to say too that she she ended it very delightfully. I blush. She says, "I listened to your podcasts as I walked one thousand miles during the pandemic. I was enlightened every day. May you proceed on for a long time to come." But this question about if you don't know the history of America, both its shining and its deplorable moments then how do you grow up to love this country and live your life as an honorable American? Could you respond to that?
1: Of course she's right. We need to know our history. And that's the big culture war we're in, the, the, the colossal culture war we're in. And it's going to heat up much more violently be, before the 250th birthday of the country in 2026, is what's the story of America? And so is the Emancipation Proclamation the great moment? Maybe. Uh, is uh, the Declaration of Independence the great moment? You know, what do we focus on? And and she says you need to know both the glories of American history, and there are many, and you need to know the dark side, unenlightened story of America. And it's it's large. And what has happened since 1965, David, is that the doors of that critique that revision of the story, of the narrative, have been open and now they've swung open wide. And the revisionists are saying, it's darker than you think. It's always been about race. It's always been about exploitation. It's always been about power. It's white males um, inventing heroic language to justify their exploitation of the planet and, and other people's. It's always been uh, a sham. It's really about power relationships, and the power relationships are really no different from Persia in the 4th century BC or the Roman Empire and don't fool yourself with all that enlightenment uh, rhetoric it's just a it's just a it's a screen behind which someone like Jefferson could be a sort of run of the mill slaveholder and a slave rapist and so on so that's that's one way of looking at our history is to is now to is to go in and wallow wallow with joy and righteousness in the darkness of America that the, the ways in which we have failed. And, of course, I feel this greatly with respect to Native Americans and res- with respect to African Americans and uh, we Vietnam. and We all get it. But do you want to wallow in it? Is that the only story? Is that the full story? Is that the narrative of America? Of course not. But the other end of the spectrum, that it's all Little House on the Prairie in every direction. Everyone does the right thing. And, oh, sure, we're imperfect, but we're always striving to be better. We're self-correcting. You know, we're the most generous people on earth. That story is not true either. They're both caricatures of a very complex story. And the very complex story is what I've given my life to. And I hate to see it hijacked from the left by this darkness and cynicism and disillusionment. But I equally deplore seeing the right go nuts over this and not being willing to admit that, you know, race has been a fundamental issue since 1619 and it doesn't go away. She's absolutely right, and and here's what I really respect in her: I don't have to answer to anybody particularly. You don't like what I say, you can turn off the radio, you can end the podcast. But she has a captive audience of twenty to thirty students, and they have parents and they have kin. And since the pandemic, the families are looking much more closely at the curricula, because they they witnessed teaching through Zoom. You know, they got into the classroom by looking over the shoulders of their, of their middle school students. And a lot of the parents have been pretty uncomfortable with what they have seen. And they're speaking out much more forcefully than they used to do when they just basically ignored it. And so a teacher like this, who has to face this has to, everything that she says has the possibility of coming back to haunt her, the call from the family to the principal, my son My daughter said, teacher such and such said this. How dare you teach that book? That book should never be in the curriculum. You should fire her. I want justice. It's a minefield out there, David, for college professors and much more for K through 12 teachers. And we need to trust them within limits. But many people, many teachers are saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't have to answer to out of context challenges every single day, every single week of my career from parents who who couldn't tell you the difference between the Emancipation Proclamation and the Magna Carta.
0: Again that letter comes from Bridget Brant of Grinnell, Iowa who listens on Iowa Public Radio. and thank you for that you know Go this, Bridget
1: go go Bridget go. This
0: whole phenomenon to me is is you know what you're talking about it boils down to one word woke. And I just am, I'm baffled by that. In fact, I've had a few email exchanges with listeners who have written us letters and and used that term and said, you know, what does that mean to you? What does that word mean to you? Is it an insult? It implies that one side is awake and the other is sleeping. It, it's just a poor choice of, of expression.
1: Yes, it has been um, taken out of its context and made kind of a universal term. But let me make the case for it for a minute. It was possible in 1970 to look at American history through almost exclusively white eyes. And the Hispanics and the African-Americans and the Native Americans and so on were all bit players on the stage. And the idea was as soon as they can fully assimilate and become just like us, then they can really be Americans. I think our eyes have been opened. I think that the cultural revolution that's occurred since the 1960s has on the whole been very good. We now read more multicultural books the canon was shattered and now things that would never have been in the curriculum are there and they've and they've established themselves as solid and useful i think that the more lenses you can put on the more truth you you come to understand but it creates complexity and it creates frustration and it creates it's problematic it makes you an- anxious in some ways so the idea is that wake up wake up slavery and race have been fundamental questions in American life from the very beginning and they're still fundamental questions in American life if a cop in Minneapolis can put his knee on a on a black man's neck and for nine minutes and that this is like has advocates on both sides you need to wake up and I get it we do need to be woke but being woke doesn't mean to surrender to the wokeness movement it means you need to be you need to wake up and realize it's all extremely complex and there are there's no black and white. There's no pure good or pure evil. It's a it's a it's a very fragmented and complicated tapestry, and nobody ever masters it. You just you just try to work your way around it and take in as many points of view as you can and establish some sort of a of a, a, a synthesis of of how to look at things. But there's no question. You know, Ken Burns just did this series on how America responded to the Holocaust. The answer is, we didn't do particularly well responding to the Holocaust. Does that mean we're evil? Does that mean we're anti-Semitic? No, it's it's extremely complicated. Franklin Roosevelt had a lot going on, and he had to tiptoe his way through this war. And yes, he probably made mistakes. Surely he made mistakes, and, and his moral vision was probably limited by his waspishness. But you can't just tell this story and say evil. America failed. It was a. It was a. Tra- it was a travesty. That there's no excuse for. It's always more complicated, David. And so to wake up, in terms of wokeness, is to wake up to the darkness. Wake up to how how, how it's not Ozzy and Harriet, and it's not Little House on the Prairie, but to be awakened, in the more Joseph Campbell sense of the term, is to become aware that life is inherently complex and problematic, and good luck trying to sort it out.
0: You know, this kind of brings us full circle to the beginning of the conversation and social media, and you know our our tendency to want to hear what we want to hear, and I think that happens a lot. And you know, I've given you all these nice emails to respond to this week. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you another one now, which comes from Rich Essenmacher. Comment on your historian show this week. Your bias is too evident. If I want that, I could watch MSNBC or Fox. You never mentioned any extreme left groups, only right ones. Nor did Lindsay Chervinsky. I expect more from such renowned experts. Now, I'll come to your defense if you want, or you can take it on yourself.
1: No, you start. I don't know where to begin. Well,
0: you—that's—that's you, that's back to you know, Twitter and short messages. People sometimes hear just a bit of a conversation and make a judgment on that i've heard you go after left-wing groups i've heard you go after right-wing groups your political position is pretty obvious to me you're a moderate and a centrist but you are a progressive i take mr essenmacher's criticism seriously I don't think he's getting the whole story.
1: Well, thank you. I think you I think you characterize me as I would like to be characterized, whether it's true or not is another question. But I'm a centrist, I'm a moderate, and I suppose I'm slightly left of center in the sense that I, I, I subscribe to progressivism, that humans can solve problems, that government has to be one of those tools, that everyone needs to be included, uh, that we have to atone for the mistakes that we have made. Uh, and that we have to reach out beyond our own comfort level to other uh, voices if we want to understand life or the history of, of this country. So I, I appreciate your, your characterization. I do think, frankly, that Lindsay is more overtly on the left end of the spectrum and, and that that can, uh, that can cause people some discomfort. But she is what she is. And we accept that. Every point of view is welcome. I'm very worried about the left. I can tell you that I'm much more concerned about the radical left than I am about the radical right because the radical right is ridiculous. You know, they're taking their AR-15s into the streets. The radical left is ideological. It's, it's using our universities as a platform. It's, it's pretending that it's the orthodoxy and that everything else is moronic. Uh, the right, you know, conspiracy theories that uh, school shootings were, were false flags and, the, and that UFOs and we're part of the Las Vegas shooting incident and you know that kind of that's just moronic the stuff that comes from the right or parts of the right so i just want to say this last thing as we close you know i've, I've been watching the arizona results it's still early that's where we're taping this at the week of the election and last night i watched fox for a while and they were saying Carrie Lake is just, it, it won't be long now before she will be dutifully declared the, the, the governor of Arizona. The results are looking good. It's it, it's it, it's only a matter of time. And then I flipped over to MSNBC and they were saying, it's only a matter of time before Hobbs is declared the winner. Things are looking good. The, the vote counts are on her side. It, it won't be long, but the it's clear now that she's going to be the next governor of Arizona. And I wanted to say, hey, knock your heads together. Come on. How about just report that we don't know that the trends change, that you don't have to always root for your own side you can just like tell the truth as you see it I mean, how about report, and then we'll we'll comment later, but this, this kind of this cheerleading on both sides for their own team, instead of saying about half of the people of Arizona want this person and about half the people of Arizona want the other person, and that's how it works in a democracy it's this kind of demonizing of the other belittling the other you need to turn those channels
0: off and watch public television i think
1: i think public television and public radio are the best things in america because they're the fairest and i know lots of people have don't believe that but they're wrong i think i I urge everyone just to watch public television pbs the news hour people can be more rational Fun program, whimsical, maybe insane. We'll see you all next week for another interesting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
2: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.